Welcome back to Strengthening Recovery Through Strengthening Marriage, Healing from Pornography Addiction. Dr. Kevin Skinner with Jeff Stewart. Today we're going to be talking about the key steps to rebuilding trust. Jeff, one of the things that we experience with these couples that we're working with is trust has been decimated. The couples are struggling to know how to rebuild or rebond that trust, rebuild that trust. And so today we're going to be talking about some specific strategies of how couples can do that. My experience is that when couples step-by-step understand these stages of trust and developing it, they're more likely to be able to open up and, and, and as we talked last time, become more uh, attached or closer to each other. That's right. The key concept here is the idea of attunement, which in our previous uh, you know episode, which was uh, episode four, Addiction and Intimacy, we talked a lot about attachment and about how healthy bonds are formed through hundreds if not thousands of interactions where you can get someone to respond to you. And so restoring trust in a damaged relationship is really about creating interactions that start to thread together these types of small attachments that form this attunement, this back and forth, this synchronization. And ultimately, that creates a tremendous amount of safety and predictability. And as you introduce this, there's the idea of transparency as a fundamental component to that attunement. Because... How many times do people fear that they don't know what their partner's thinking? How many times have you heard that? I just don't know what she's thinking or I don't know what he's thinking. And as a result, they're kind of guessing or they're left to their own mind to what's really going on in their in their partner's mind. Is he committed? Is he not committed? I mean, if he's committed, why is he doing this? And if she's, you know, if she's always angry like this, is, does she really care about the relationship? And if there's not that transparency, that open communication, we are left to our own thoughts, which oftentimes lead us down the wrong path. That's right. And I think when you're dealing with recovering from the damage done by secrecy and betrayal, transparency becomes a critical need. So I think we should start with transparency as the first one, because um, typically, like we talked about in our last sec- segment, uh, the damage that's done from this is, is really the fear of not knowing what's real. And this disconnection, this sense of where is this person? Who are they? What I thought I knew is not what I see now, and so what's real? So it becomes so critical at this point to become as clear and open and transparent as possible. It then will take away some of the questions. How does she really feel about me? I mean, if she's angry at me, obviously she doesn't like me anymore. And and we begin to build this case against the marriage rather than for the marriage. That's and uh, ultimately, we want to shift it for building a case for the marriage because if, if our own minds are building a case against it, then we become kind of disillusioned. We stop feeling close to. We become apathetic toward the relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what leads to a lot of relapses and it leads to divorce. Right. And she needs to know, you know, she needs to know basically, um, where is this guy? Who is this guy? Is he there for me? What can I count on? And am I safe? I mean, that those are some of the big questions that, in terms of transparency that she's wanting to get answered. And for him, he's really wanting to find out, do I matter? Am I acceptable? Um, those kinds of things. And so those, those are, are critical questions that each of them are asking, but oftentimes they don't even know how to talk about. So you run groups for the Lifestar Network, and, and you're in St. George, and you're running with these groups, and you, you're talking with these couples. Uh, what are some of the things of transparency that are so critical for couples to learn? Well, I think the first thing is, is you know, it, I, I put a lot of uh, a lot of the burden initially on him, 
on the on the one who had the secret and was hiding and but the betrayal for him to to really lead out and start to restore that trust and so a, a lot of this initially what I'm talk about is going to really relate to to what he needs to do to you know really put out the fire as much as possible and by that it's it's really letting her know first of all what really happened and in uh, addiction recovery we call that disclosure um in some religious circle you may call it confession but really it's about it's about going through and taking an honest inventory of what really happened now i'll say as a quick uh side point and this could be a whole other discussion for another day but a lot of the times, a lot of guys wonder, well, how much should I disclose? I don't want to re-traumatize her. And that's an excellent point because you don't want to re-traumatize her when you're being transparent. The key thing is, and I think of this as the CNN headline news, you know, you want to just focus on the, the little talking points, the little the, the headlines, the, uh, the, the, the chapter titles. You don't want to get into all the details, the play-by-plays of everything you saw and did. But you, what you want to get into is patterns of behavior, which is, for example, between you know 1998 and 2004, I was viewing pornography on average three to five times a week, and I would masturbate every time, and that went on pretty much consistently through that time period. That's an appropriate disclosure versus going through and detailing every little single thing that they saw and whatever else, if there's been any sort of outside sexual behaviors and other kinds of things like that, those need to be disclosed. And we're talking categories. And a critical point here that I've found that is really absolutely a deal breaker is if it's piecemealed. That's right. If you piecemeal this, it happened in 98, 99. And later she finds records from 2000. That's right. And 2002. And if you if if you're going to in this disclosure, if you're going to piecemeal it, you're going to re-traumatize her over and over and over again. So when you're throwing up, get it all out. That's right. And so I recommend that if a guy's going to do a disclosure, I don't want him doing it on the spot. I want him to be able to say to his partner, "You know what? I want to do this right." I need to make sure because I've been numbed out, I've been blocking, rationalizing, minimizing this, I need to be able to go through. So I encourage you to find a counselor, church leader, somebody that you can sit down with and you go through. And I would also add that you pray, that you meditate, that you, you really get into a space where you can recall as much as you can and, and come up with the major list of behaviors and do the work. Take the time that it needs. And it usually will take several efforts of writing it down, reading it to someone. And then in the process, I'm every time, Kevin, and you've seen this too, mm-hmm. every time that they read their disclosure to me first, stuff comes up. Mm-hmm. They remember things. And so you've got to go through that process. This is not just sitting down going, okay, fine. And here's what I did. And then and that's the piecemeal. It's a staggered, right. it's a staggered disclosure. It's more devastating. And so I have not met one partner that has said, no, I'm not going to wait for that. Every one of them has been like, fine, no problem. If I know he's working on it and I'm going to get the truth, then I'll wait for it. And they all do. Two points there. It can't be half-hearted. No. Right? And then that's that fine. I'll, I'll, here it is. Half-hearted is not going to get you. It, it, it shows that you're not quite there in the reco- full recovery process yet. Right. The second point if you are literally able to take your time, we call it the sexual history, uh, at least some people do. An inventory. An mm-hmm. inventory. And you start looking back, 
be aware that you're going to feel guilt and shame in that process. And that's oftentimes why people are afraid to do it in my experience with them is it's, I don't want to look back because it's so, I feel so bad about it. I feel guilt. I feel shame. And the research is very clear on this. When you actually open up with those transgressions, misdeeds, whatever you want to call them, and you literally look at your sexual history, it actually opens up your mind and say, I was only eight years old. Why in the world would an eight-year-old be thinking so sexual? Well, I was exposed to dad's this, or I was exposed to my neighbor's videos. Then they begin to have even more compassion on themselves rather than thinking I'm some flawed, without moral type of a person. And to me, that is a very important healing component to this. So if you don't do the sexual history, you're really like saying, all right, let's just move forward. Yeah, or let's just let's just go off of what you've discovered, and and so it's really it's really a half-hearted effort, and the the relationship deserves full transparency, and that's really the only way things are going to feel safe. Now, I get asked a lot, what about lie detectors? You know, polygraphs. What about uh, taking my husband's computer in and getting the whole hard drive searched and stuff like that? You know. I'm certainly not going to tell somebody not to do that because I think people need to do what they need to do. But my experience has been is that doesn't make people feel better. No, I think it's so much more effective if they do it on their own. Correct. I mean, and, and the, I mean the spouse says, look, I'm going to do an inventory here and I'm willing to, to share my past with you. And sometimes for some individuals, they think, well, why didn't it, it really creates a little bit more trauma initially. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of research that even shows this. Uh, Dr. James Pinbaker, who did some research on opening up in the disclosure, he found a very interesting thing. He said, when people initially disclose trauma, whether through writing or talking about it, it actually makes them a little bit more anxious and more depressed initially. But down the road, six months, they are significantly less depressed, and their immune system actually has actually gone up in their full disclosure. I see that all the time. And, and so scientific evidence would say mm-hmm. the more open you are with this, initially it's going to be very painful, it's going to be very real. But if you don't do that, then you're going to have these gnawing things inside that physiologically are not healthy for you. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to maintain a secret. And so it's just important to have it all on the table all at once as clearly as possible. Uh, Mark Chamberlain had a great quote on that. I think you were going to share. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mark Chamberlain uh, shared a quote with me uh, that said, you know, pornography takes really about less than 1% of your life in terms of how much time you spend looking at it when you look at the whole lifespan. But when you're keeping a secret about pornography, it consumes 100% of your life. And, and it's so important that when you're in disclosure and you're full honesty and transparency then it goes back to zero. It, it doesn't consume any part of it because at least the secrecy, and the secrecy is what's so damaging. And so when you're keeping a secret, you're 100% disconnected from the truth. And even though you may only be doing that behavior less than 1% of the time. So it's so important to come forward with it, be open about it, and talk about it so that that part's not holding you back anymore. And how many times have you heard a spouse say, I just wish he would talk with me? Right. I, I really just wish, even even if he's relapsed, or even better yet, if he's having cravings, if he would just mm-hmm. say to me, it's been a hard day. Right. How many times have you heard a spouse say that? Right. I, I can't count how many times I've heard that, that very statement. Just come to me. Tell me it's I been a hard day. I can handle the truth. Yeah. I can handle the truth. Don't keep it from me. Yep. And so that transparency is, is, a, is a critical first step. And I, I know like in the 12-step program, uh, it's, you know, it's step four and five, which is create your inventory and share it with somebody. Mm-hmm. Creating it 
is not enough. You have to share it. And I always recommend do not share your first draft with your partner. Right. Go to somebody. I recommend a, a professional who specializes in treating sexual addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to uh, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health, sash.net, mm-hmm. lifestarnetwork.org, Growth Climate, there's, there are some resources, therapists that you can link into who specialize in treating sexual addictions and that know how this process works, can sit with you, help you do that in an in a, in a effective way. And if you are willing to do that, then you're going to get advice from people who understand it because I, I think there's a very clear differentiation between people who understand addiction related with sexual behaviors, pornography, and people who say it's it's just a normal thing and you should embrace it, you should accept it. If you're trying to heal your relationship, if that's the approach they take and they say, look, women, you just need to accept your husband, then you're going to be in, in, in a really painful place because you're going to be caught between your emotions. Yeah, and like we talked about in the myths about pornography in, in the very first episode we did, there's a lot of fringe ideas out there about how pornography can fit into a relationship and you shouldn't have to disclose that because it's acceptable here and there. It's just not true. Pornography is very disconnecting, and so all those behaviors need to be disclosed. And so you, when you're working with a professional who understands this, they can give you a better roadmap and you can tell your story and they can help you say, you know what, um, that probably would not be a useful thing to share that detail. Let's talk about it this way. And that way you can know that you've still been open and honest, but that you're not uh, going to completely nuke your marriage uh, with unnecessary information. And this is not, again, this is not about keeping secrets or hiding. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing a disclosure in a way that sets you up to restore trust. And I have found when people begin to open up that transparency, Literally, there is a physiological shift or change inside of them. It's a freeing element. That's right. And so one of the the first steps we're talking about rebuilding trust is that transparency, is that openness. And without it, I think without that, that foundation stone, as we would refer to, if you don't have it, you're going to have a very difficult time rebuilding the trust in the relationship. You can't. Re- you can't do it. You can't. There, without it, I, it's like saying, you know, I used to do uh, foundations for homes and we put the footings in. And if you don't have the footings in your relationship... The house will crumble. I don't care how steady it is up top. I don't care how many nails and how many uh, barriers or um, not barriers, but uh, how many links you put together up top. It's going to crumble. That's right. So we got to get the footings in place solid. And I think we've mentioned this in a couple of other episodes, but I'm going to say it again because it's so critical. If you're listening to this and you have not come forward and disclosed to your partner, now's the time. Do not wait until you are caught. And so you can absolutely set a precedent for transparency and openness and and setting a pattern of, I will come to you with the truth. And that message will be burned into the fabric of your relationship, and it will be so important to have that foundation now. If you got caught, or if you caught your partner looking at pornography and you're listening to this as as a spouse or a partner, it's not the end of the world. You can still do it. It just will take longer. And, and, and that's where we're going to talk more about handling relapses and opening up and coming forward and, and intimacy and talking and so on. But um, I'm just telling you, if there's, if there's a chance that you, you can still come forward with the truth and talk about it, offer the disclosure, you're in such a better position. And the power of, of saying to a spouse, to a potential spouse, when you say, I have a very difficult thing to talk with you about, 
it really sets a precedence for what can happen afterwards in that disclosure. And when I say a precedence, an openness, because they say, you know, it really hurts me that you're doing this, but thank you for coming to me and telling me. Right. Very good. So transparency, again, is an ongoing process. It's not just a one-time event. It's not just about making the disclosure and then you're done. We're going to talk more about uh, shifting from just talking about the symptoms or the sexual acting out behaviors, which are which are a huge part of the betrayal. But as far as the healing is concerned, we don't want to spend all of our time just only talking about the sexual uh, acting out behaviors because, to me, that's just a very small part of this bigger problem. And so we want to shift from the disclosure, knowing what's out there, what's happened, reestablishing a baseline so that any future slips or relapse that may happen are um, are disclosed, but it's not about what else is there. It's about saying this is just currently what's happening. So we've got to establish that baseline as a way to build a, a foundation, and then you move forward from there. And I want to also emphasize the importance of non-threatening disclosure. Example, it's been a hard day at work. That's a kind of openness or intimacy that can be created by just talking about your emotions throughout the day with each other. Right. So I tell couples, you can focus on, on opening up and disclosure related to the, to the pornography or the sexual acts, but you also need to have transparency with other emotions you're experiencing. Uh, I had a bad day with the children. They, they just got on my nerves. That open communication then makes it so you're open in many areas rather than just one area. That's right. And that's a disclosure. And that's saying a disclosure is in my, you know, I, I haven't looked it up in the dictionary, but I'm guessing it would be about opening something up, right? And so really that is actually very protective for both partners when they're opening up and, and building that intimacy of, of, say, of you know, talking every day. John Gottman, in his, uh, his great research on marriages, he talked about love maps or mapping a world, your partner's world and knowing intimately what's going on just day to day. Those little details are so protective. And so when there's been secrecy, there has to be openness, disclosure. That has to be out on the table. But then as you move on from that and you keep going, you've got to maintain that, like you're saying, Kevin, with lots of... Uh, just daily disclosures about things. And so partners oftentimes will ask me, well, I want to check with him every day if he's had any relapses. And what I find is that if you're already in the pattern of open disclosure and talking and sharing and connecting, hopefully you're going to be catching the emotional states and other things like that that we've talked about in other episodes that will trigger those sexual desires. And hopefully in his disclosures, he'll be feeling safe enough with the relationship and being able to come to you if there's been anything that's been off. And, and in the dictionary, a disclosure actually in the psychological aspect is refers to talking to others about one's feelings. Oh, good. About yeah. one's feelings. I like that. Right? So, so I really think that that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the ability to disclose our feelings. Good, bad, positive, negative, sexual, non-sexual, ups, downs. That kind of disclosure is what we would really call emotional intimacy. Right. And it's an emotionally intimate relationship. And I like the, uh, Rory Reed is the first one who used this word, but others have used it many times since. But it's into me see, as we use the word intimacy. That's mm-hmm. the first time I'd heard it from somebody. But that, that concept of into me see is including my emotions. One of the things that I see a lot of guys that struggle with pornography addiction, and I'm sure they're partners too, is this concept of alexithymia. 
And, you know, you really break down that word, and it's, you know, the A is, is an absence of or lack of. Lexithymia is an absence of ability to talk about feelings. And so this, this inability to talk about feelings is one of the casualties of a pornography addiction. And part of recovering from pornography addiction is the ability to talk about feelings because pornography addiction is not really even about sex or pornography. It's about the mismanagement of feelings and emotions. And so as you open up and learn to do this, then it's very protective. It takes a long time to learn how to do this. And a lot of guys maybe came from family systems where talking about feelings just didn't happen. Boys and don't so, cry. Boys don't. That's right. You don't show emotion. And so if you've grown up in that environment, the ability to share emotions with a spouse is likely to be limited. And you have to learn how. And I really believe that when I say learn how, it's a skill. That's right. It's not an inherited trait. We no. learn how to communicate. And, and really, you can do that. And women may do it more naturally than men because there's a lot of reasons. But one of them, obviously, that they're, they're socialized more to share emotions and feelings. But it's a learned behavior. And men can learn to do it just like women. And, and there are some women who do it less naturally than men, whatever. It doesn't matter. You need to be able to learn how to do it. It can be taught. And what I would say to both individuals in this relationship, when you are doing that, that's a good sign that you're headed in the right direction. Correct. I want to emphasize these are steps that you're taking to rebuild that trust. When you are open, it starts to happen, which really leads us into the next question. And it, what happens when a relapse occurs? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, this is this is oftentimes a topic that a lot of partners don't want to uh, talk about because it's so painful. And in some ways, they worry that it's giving permission for a relapse. And I understand that. I get that that when we're talking about this, it's almost like, oh, you mentioned the word relapse or that relapses might happen. It's sort of saying you get a free pass to act at any time you want. And that's not what I'm saying. Instead, what I'm saying is that when you're dealing with a, a, an addictive behavior, you're dealing with something that has been a powerful mood regulator many times for decades in these individuals. And when they're coming out of this, what they're learning to do is to learn to live life without that regulator. And that takes practice. And, and it will take time, and they will make mistakes. But here's the way I look at relapses. If somebody's really in recovery... Each relapse will look different, and they should be progressing. And if you study them and understand exactly what happened, how soon they came to disclose it, um, how long it lasted, the conditions around it, how far upstream they caught it and kind of where it all happened, as you start to break it down a little bit and spend some time with it, understand the emotional triggers, and there's more insight into why it happened. There's all these pieces that go into making sense of a relapse, and we'll talk about some of those. All of a sudden, you start to see that there's movement and progression. And if you know there's movement and progression, the relapses, as hard and as difficult and as painful as they are, will not have the profound hopelessness that perhaps you think they would. And when a person discloses a relapse, the earlier they do that, in my experience, the better off it is. In other words, if, if they've relapsed and within a brief period of time, it may be a few hours, it may be the next day, but they, they're open about it rather than it being discovered, there's a, there's a critical part there of that kind of openness, that type of transparency that can help in it if they're willing to say, here's what happened. And I'm going to go through and do some work about what happened inside of me to get me to the point where I relapsed. 
right? And relapse is actually very, uh, disclosing a relapse rather, is very protective in preventing the next relapse. And so, you know, Mark Chamberlain um, uh, shared with me an example where uh, he had a guy that uh, was on a business trip and, and they had made a rule that he would disclose any relapses he had to his wife within the hour that it mm. happened. And so he was on a business trip. He was in the hotel. It was 1.30 in the morning, and he had a slip with pornography. He looked at pornography on the TV. He called his wife at like 2 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, she's totally out of it. By the time she realized why he was calling, she became very angry and was reactive on the phone. And, of course, she was exhausted and tired. And they got off the phone, but he felt some relief. He felt hurt and upset and frustrated and scared about the whole conversation, understandably, and so did she, but he felt relief. And that was huge for him in terms of him being able to go to sleep and not feel that urge to go act out again, where when you hide that and you stuff that and you don't disclose that relapse, it actually fuels more tension which then creates more shame, which then creates more need to mood alter. And if you uh, do look at the research that I've done, uh, most people binge. And it's the binging that numbs the motions deeper. And so when I say a binge, it's not one episode. It's multiple episodes in a day or two days or a week or sometimes even longer. And, and if you can literally course correct, the earlier you course correct, the less likely you are to engage in completely numbing behaviors. Because sometimes people take it from pornography to other sexually acting out behaviors. If they would deal with it initially early on, some of those other sexual behaviors may not occur because they've literally opened up and they begin to understand more of themselves. So they're looking inward, how can I heal this rather than feeling hopeless? So, Kevin, let's script this just a little bit because I want to I get some nuts and bolts for these uh, listeners on how to handle a disclosure from both ends. And so let's start with the, the individual who is going to be coming forward with the disclosure. What would you say, Kevin, are some of the key things that he needs to keep in mind as he's coming toward her and uh, planning on making a disclosure? I think step number one for me is he has to slow his mind down enough to assess what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean... The assumption is, I'm going to talk with my wife. What do I need to say to her? And I'm not saying hiding anything. I'm saying, what what is the truth? That's right. And so it requires a self-evaluation. If you go in that without any idea, hey, I relapsed, almost half-heartedly or without sincerity, it's not necessarily going to be helpful. So it needs to be a self-evaluation first. That's my first step with individuals. Step back, look at what happened, identify it. Then the next step is, what is the best way for me to approach her? I mean, is it in person? I mean, if you're away on a business trip, that's kind of a hard thing to do. So it's a matter of, I need to be open with her as soon as possible. Here's what I'm going to say to her. And some of those specific things that I've found effective in that disclosure is a matter of, I need to be honest with you, I relapsed. Here's what I'm doing right now to understand it. I recognized that last night it started, and we talked on the phone, and when I fell asleep, I woke up, whatever it may be, say that example that Dr. Chamberlain gave, it's the ability then to step back long enough to say, and I woke up, and it was there, and I didn't respond, and here's what I would do if if I was in that situation again. Sometimes that's a helpful thing, but it's the awareness that I'm telling you this, I'm sorry I hurt you, which is another point. Right. Full accountability, no excuses, not blaming, and explaining it after the fact to me is sort of the optional piece. 
depending on how the partner responds. And we'll talk some more about that. But I, I, I agree with you that there needs to be clarity of mind about what you're going to share, mm-hmm. taking full accountability for it. And coming to the partner and being able to say, I had a relapse. I did these behaviors. And then shutting your mouth and being quiet and listening and re- letting her respond authentically to your disclosure. And that anger and the emotion, it's... the. If you've taken the time, you're going to be able to respond from a better position of, I, I do feel guilt for this. Mm-hmm. If you don't yet feel that guilt or that shame, and, and shame is I'm internalizing it. No, it's being able to say, I hurt this person. Not, right. not I'm a bad person. I hurt my spouse. Remember, we don't want to avoid the feelings of guilt. Guilt is, an, is a powerful motivator, and it helps us correct behavior. And what we want to get away from is the shame and the self-loathing and the, the self, you know, the self. I'm bad. I'm, right, I'm, I'm a, I'll never make it. I'm a loser. I can't do anything right. That's not helpful. But if you're not feeling guilt going into a disclosure and you. You're not ready. Yeah. And if you, and if you um, are listening to your partner and really hearing what she's saying, you will feel guilt. And that's important. And that's not a bad thing. The key thing is to not is to not is to not internalize it into shame. Like, well, I'm a loser because she's mad. You're not a loser because she's mad. She's mad because she's hurt and she's disconnected and she's afraid. And that's important that you don't get to control her reaction to your disclosure. You don't get to try and talk her out of it. And so it's really important that in that disclosure you allow her to feel what she feels. And oh, that last point was so critical. You don't get to tell her how she should feel. Right. I have seen repeatedly that does so much more damage than being able to allow her whatever she's feeling. That's right. Because if you try to dictate her emotions, that's a controlling behavior that damages her. It damages the relationship. And usually that controlling behavior, my experience, Kevin, has come from a guy who's experiencing a high level of shame internally and feels like a loser, feels like he's broken and bad, and he's needing her to respond to him in a way that won't make him feel bad. But, you know, that to me is like telling somebody that they need to eat for you because you're hungry. And that just sounds ridiculous, obviously, but it's an important illustration of this, which is her reaction really has nothing to do with your shame. Your shame is about your shame, and you've got to do some work to make sense of why is it hard for you to stay with her in that pain right there, um, we'll talk about this in a little bit more, but the key, the key thing here that I'm trying to say is that when you make a disclosure, let her feel how she feels. It's very important. That's not about you right now. That's about her. Mm-hmm. And the more you can stay with her in that and let her feel that, the more healing there'll be. Uh, for her and for you. Correct. Because when they've relapsed and they've hurt someone, now it's a double whammy. I've relapsed. I already feel bad. Now I've disclosed it. Now I feel really bad because now I've heaped on top of it. That's one way to look at it, but there's a much better way to look at it. I was open, and because I was open, there's no secret. And in our recovery process, being able to listen to her will be validating for her, valuing her in the context of I'm not hiding anymore. Yeah. Now she, she may say, I don't want, I don't, you know, I can't deal with this right now. She may say, I don't want to talk to you for a few days. She may, she may do that. Not that that may be the best response, but you have to honor where she's at in that moment. That's right. And this is a long-term play. We're talking about rebuilding trust over time, moving toward her, 
being open and disclosing is a step toward rebuilding intimacy because now you know what's real. I'm a I'm a big fan of the it's a short book, but it's a very good one discussing pornography problems with a spouse mm-hmm. by Dan Gray and Rory Reed. You can purchase that on lifestarnetwork.org. That's a that's a good little resource for helping you make sense of how to do a disclosure. Um, let's talk now about the partners on their end. We've kind of talked a little bit about um, a partner is going to have to have an authentic response. This is the thing. You're not going to be really necessarily prepared for a disclosure because he's the one that's going to be bringing it to you. So, Or you may even um, discover it um, you know, where you catch him in the act or whatever else or catch evidence of it. So what I'm going to be talking about right now is when he comes to you with it, though, um, in, the, in the process of restoring trust. And the, the, the critical step here is that, and this may sound overly simplistic, but the most critical thing is to breathe and to regulate your body as much as possible. You will be experiencing a traumatic shock to your system, and your body will go on high alert, your muscles will tense, your breathing will change, you'll become tense, and it's important that as much as possible you start to regulate your system and just kind of stay there and absorb it and not do anything super overreactive like this. Um, We want you to have an authentic experience with it and feel what you feel, but in terms of your own sanity and your own health and your own stability, the more you can learn to um, recognize that you're in a trauma, that you're in that state, and start to regulate that with breathing and and relaxing your body and grounding yourself as much as possible, the better. You know, and that is so hard to do in that moment. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think we really need to acknowledge it because your raw emotion is literally, it's almost as if you've been in a car accident. That's right. And and you're you're a participant in this accident, and now you're like, right. what, what do I do? Right. And, and everywhere from anger to wanting to flee and right. get away from the scenario, all natural, normal emotions. Yep. So the concept of breathing, and in fact, people in trauma, that's one of the things they do suggest they mm-hmm. do, is sl- try to slow the mind, relax through breathing. And then your mind at least has the ability to see more clearly the options that are before you rather than going into this trauma-based, I don't know what to do, and panicking. I've had people actually do some things that they seriously regretted upon discovering a partner's right. sexual behaviors. Right. And so the, the, the key thing is, is, like you're saying, Kevin, I'm not trying to suggest that this will be reflexive for anybody out there. It's not reflexive. The reflex is to fight or to run or to hide or, or yell or whatever. What I'm saying that as soon as you can, as soon as you are aware that this is even happening, you've got to get into a, a calmer state, and and then the next thing. Uh, go ahead. And, and I, I want to add to that. That doesn't mean you can't be angry. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if, if what that does mean in that in that response, you may be able to just say to your spouse, "All right, I want to rip your head off. I need a break right now. That's right. I'm going to go to the room, or I'm going to hang up the phone, and." I am going to go process, what word we use, emotional process what I'm feeling. And mm-hmm. then we'll talk. Because right now, I, if I talk to you, I don't think I'm going to be productive. Right. Because I want to rip your head off. I want to hurt you. I want to get away. I want to divorce you. I want to, I want to, I want to whatever. 
Yep. And so being able to feel that anger is really the anger to me is, is quite a useful emotion when it's when it's understood correctly. And anger is just really a, a signal to me, like a gauge that just says something went wrong. This was not okay. This line was crossed. And we have to pay attention to that inner signal that says this was not okay. We're not designed to stay in anger very long. Anger is only designed to mm-hmm. amplify a situation and help to, it become more relevant to, to us. To protect us. That's right. To protect us. And if we stay in anger as as a way to cope, then we're gonna we're gonna actually break down. But but we need to validate and recognize that that's a protective thing that that's happening to us, and it's okay. We just can't stay there forever. And and if by chance you find yourself regularly angry, it's because you haven't yet processed your pain. That's right. And, and when I say process the pain, anger is a secondhand emotion. It's not the first. I mean, it is the first that we feel, but there's always something beneath it. Right. There's, so, yeah. Right. Rejection, hurt, abandonment, sadness, fear of loss, emptiness. Uh, I'm not the feeling of I'm not good enough. And those are what's typically beneath the anger, and we really need to dig down to find out those true emotions so we can say to our spouse, I feel, you know, I felt like you were making progress, and I and I feel like we've had to start over, and with this relapse, it really makes me feel hopeless. I'm scared about the future. Yeah, I'm scared yeah. about the future. Getting in touch with those emotions may not happen on the spot. In most cases, it doesn't. I very rarely have I seen people be able to do that. Right. So what ends up happening is that um, you'll have the initial surge but you've got to recognize that's what's happening to you. It's a trauma response, validating that, breathing, slowing yourself down, asking for space if you need it, or asking for closeness if you need it. Some partners feel like they want to be closer, and they feel scared, and they reach for that. And that's a normal thing. There's nothing wrong. Some people want space. Some people want closeness. They're both acceptable, and they're both very healthy. And the key thing is is that you're regulating, that you're slowing down and trying to get as, as in touch with your own feelings and emotional responses and your thoughts as much as possible. And as you do that, you really can feel like you're more in control. Right. Because it's hard to feel out of control, not just by what you discovered, but out of control of your own emotions. Right. I mean, I've heard so many women say, I have felt anger and I've never felt this way. I've never been so upset. I've never been so agitated. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't do anything. And the ability to regulate that is a very empowering thing. And a lot of the times when they when they don't get when they when they feel out of control, partners oftentimes almost intensify their own feelings of shame that they're letting themselves down that they're not becoming that they're not acting like themselves and they that's where a lot of the craziness comes from is they feel like they're on this train of behavior that doesn't fit them and so that's why reaching out I find that a lot of partners, when they've had a disclosure, if they have a support system in the form of a group, an ecclesiastical leader, uh, a loved one, um, that, that that can help to, to turn to that system and ask for support and connection. Um, and so there, there's ways of regulating. We talk about co-regulating. You, you have to be able to connect and feel safe. A lot of women turn to prayer and meditation and, and connect and try and get that sense of peace. And that is so important because we're dealing again with a shock and a trauma. Now, after that part, after you've slowed things down, then what? Uh, my at that time, you're more likely to be able to get in touch with the true emotions. Right. And it's then the ability to have what I would call the hard conversation. Yes. It's the ability to say, I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm, I feel the need to pull away emotionally for a while. So I may, I may not be a, as available as I had been. Mm-hmm. And that's an authentic response. That's right. Or it may be, 
I need more information. I, I, I need more. I, you told me that it happened. I need to understand what you've learned in this process. Right. It may be anything from, I feel like I need a hug. Mm-hmm. I, I just need some physical touch. Can you spend more time with me? So, but, but you can't get to that emotional need unless you've identified what it is that, and, and in all my experiences, I see hot and cold, and it happens almost daily, up and down, mm-hmm. especially initially. Months later, it's not quite to that extreme, but generally speaking, I can see let's hug and let's hate. In other words, the anger comes out and I need a hug could happen within a few minutes or a few hours of each other. And really, I look at that process as, uh, you know, a natural attachment, attunement process, which is I need closeness to feel safe. And then pulling away is I'm scared that I won't have the closeness and I worry that this isn't real. And and that, that goes on and on. And that's okay. That's a normal thing. That's part of reattuning. Yeah. Um, now, th- this whole thing about what to talk about and so on. I liked something you said earlier. It's it's really about being able to say, uh, you know, the partner being able to say back to the addict things like, thank you for coming forward with this. I appreciate you being open with me and transparent. As hard as that might be to say, if you're really serious about rebuilding your relationship, if you really are thinking that this is a relationship you want to stay in and keep and build, there has to be an acknowledgement that what he did made a difference for you. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to talk about, but it really is true, and it needs to be uh, shared, which is, um, I that was probably hard for you, um, or uh, thank you for being open with me, thank you for coming to me. And then being able to talk about, I think it's really critical. When I'm talking with guys in, in counseling about their relapses, I'm asking questions like, what did you learn from this relapse? What did you discover that you didn't know before? What kinds of things have changed because of this? What new behaviors are you doing as a result of this? What new boundaries are you setting? Um, What did you learn about your emotional state? What needs do you feel like you were trying to get met by that? These are all good questions. Now, will a partner be able to ask those questions right out the gate? No. I've never seen it happen. Mm -hmm. However... Once there's been some de-escalation and there's been some perspective and some time, I think it's critical to come back. And so instead of coming back and saying and checking about, well, have you done it again? Have there been more relapses and staying on that symptom behavior? I think it's great to come back over time and be able to ask some of these questions because those answers to those questions are going to be huge in restoring trust and safety. Which means he's done the work. That's right. And she's allowed him the time to process it. And and simultaneously, she's processing her own emotions. And if he's responsible, he is asking her. That's right. What did my relapse trigger inside of you? Yes. A very validating statement of saying, I care. What was that like for you, honey? How did that, you know, how did that affect your safety, your trust in me? Where did that put you? These are great questions, and both partners need to be able to have that conversation. And what I find is that when they do that, it actually becomes a strength-building experience from a relapse. And you wouldn't think that a relapse could move the couple forward, but if they handle it this way, and this may take days or weeks, Kevin, this Mm -hmm. does not happen in one session. So don't be, I don't want listeners to think that, that you know, you just take a few quick breaths and start asking these questions. That is not the case. Right. This is a very long thing, and so this is really about saying, "Am I going to use this relapse as a way to learn and grow? Is this mistake going to be my teacher?" And 
is this relapse really a signal that something was wrong and something was off internally with me that I need to take accountability for and learn from? And that's how it should be viewed. I absolutely love that process when couples get into that into that flow yeah. because they 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 get an energy. You see it because mm-hmm. they're they're literally becoming attuned to one to one another's emotional needs. I've not seen this process go very naturally or easily in early early recovery. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens in early recovery just for listeners to know is that the disclosure happens, there's usually the the high emotion Things kind of settle down, and typically these things may be processed in a group or a counseling setting, and there may need to be a third party there to help hold you in that and talk about it. So please don't misunderstand uh, this. I want to be clear that 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 level of being able to talk about it is more kind of a long-term recovery thing, and because the relapses in long-term recovery, if there even are any, are certainly much less severe because and, there's so much more awareness. Right. And so they, they catch them earlier. And so the, you know, the, the problematic behaviors that created the initial trauma of the, disclo- of the, the, you know, the addiction trauma and so on, um, if those are happening six months to a year down the road in recovery at the same level, then, then something's not working. What I'm talking about in this t- longer discussion are about relapses and so on that are, um, that are caught much earlier and are less severe. And let me make a point here. I really, I don't want to gloss over one thing that I see that really hurts couples, either in the early process, especially in the early process, but it's the statement that will be made, when you're not so angry, then we'll talk. Right. And I want I want to bring that up because I just feel inside that we need to address that that's the lack of maturity in, in this process. It hasn't developed yet because... It's the ability to understand each other's emotions, not saying, look, you're too angry right now to talk. Right, as if your anger means that this is bad. Because then in that situation, if you do that, say the husband does that to the wife, then she's feeling like, oh, that means i got to get this under control. And now the, she's feeling responsible for the emotion she's feeling from his behavior. Right. It, that's kind of destructive. We don't want to go there. It's, I, I want to talk with you right now. I'm feeling very defensive because of your, how you're feeling. Let's can we take a five minute break? Take a few deep breaths, and, I, and then I really want to understand what you're saying because right. right now I, I I just I'm not able. And I said a five minute break. My point there is, don't ever leave them. You're too angry right now, and I don't ever want I don't want to talk about it. Right until you're not angry. I believe that is more damaging to her. Well, and it sends a message too that you're not allowed to be angry. Yeah. In other words, you know you don't have a point for feeling this way, and that is so not true. Yeah. And and as couples get later on in that relationship, he or she will both understand the anger, and she may say, "I'm so angry right now. I need a break." And the couple can tolerate that right. because I I haven't seen too many couples in high intense anger solve problems. No. Well, you're in that fight or flight mode and your brain is actually the prefrontal cortex, the problem solving, the command center has been um, in some ways, for lack of a better word, deactivated. You're not really there and you're not able to make decisions that tie into your values. And so you've got to be able to uh, basically awaken the the higher order thinking, the the more um, uh, analytical part of your brain as opposed well, to that, yeah. Well, opposed to the amygdala, which That's is the right. emotional center, which has been hijacked with the anger and That's with right. intensity. I mean, it's hard to solve a problem when you're in high intense situations. John Gottman did some research in Seattle in his love lab where he would be having couples uh, pick a, a hard conversation and he would monitor their heart rate and their oxygen levels and their you know sweat and so on. And what he found is that um, when these couples were asked 
to uh, they would interrupt the cycle and they would you know act like the equipment was broken. The researchers would come in and bring in magazines and they would just sit there and not be arguing. They'd just be reading a magazine. They'd be watching their heart rate this whole time in the other room. And what they found is that it took them on average 20 minutes or so for them to get back down to baseline. And that's just by not even talking. And so our bodies take a long time to derate. So you can sometimes sit there and go, all right, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm ready to talk again now. It's just not the case. If you're flooded. If you're flooded or if you've been hijacked, you're right. You'll need time. You'll need some time. The, the 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 critical piece of this is to is to ask for that space with an invitation to come back. You've got to maintain that attachment as much as possible to say this matters to me. I want to come back to it. Should we talk about touch now? You know, I think that's a question that many couples uh, have to deal with. It's right. You know, is it okay to have sex? Is it okay to hug? Is it? A, I mean. I, I, do I want to be hugged? Do I not want to have sex? I mean, what do I want? And and literally, I have seen couples go back and forth on this. And and how do we deal with our sexual relationship now? Right. My I'm a big fan of uh, of Barry McCarthy's work. And what I love about his work is that he takes the pressure off intercourse as the measure of how things how well things are going in the sexual relationship. A lot of couples find that after the disclosure of a pornography problem as they're trying to rebuild intimacy, some find that they they actually have more intimacy in sex because they're talking more and they feel closer. Some find that it's so threatening and so damaging and so scary depending on what happened that they don't want to touch at all. Both are okay. And the and you have to be start with where you're at and that's okay. And that requires respecting each other. That's right. Uh, because if you say the the husband or the male in this situation pushes for that sexual intimacy, his wife may be saying, this isn't even about me. It's to gratify you. you it's not about connecting. Right. And regardless of where you start, if, if the, 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 the trauma of the disclosure triggers more sexual connecting or more sexual disconnection, the place you have to end up as a couple is to learn about connection. And so what has to happen is wherever you start, you have to learn to be able to non-demand physical touch, which is really a fancy way of saying to be able to make sure that touch doesn't always equal sex. And, and that's a healthy thing for the marriage Yes. All by itself. All by itself. Because if couples are just, quote unquote, having sex and not holding hands and not feeling comfortable just being around, literally bumping into each other. I mean, we do that in our homes all the time. But when couples are in high conflict, I have found that the touch goes down significantly. Not just sexual. So then if the husband approaches the wife just for sex then she's feeling more used than she is as a partner. So I completely agree with the idea. Let's increase the touch. Now, I want to be sensitive to people who that creates trauma for them because it's led to sex in the past. That's right. And that requires the openness that we discussed earlier. I'm not comfortable with touch right now. I love you, but touch is threatening to me. Right. And so... I, I encourage couples, if they're planning on staying in the relationship together, to then have the other hard conversation of saying, well, let's talk about different levels of closeness then. And so the level of closeness may be, I can be in the same room with you, right? I'm not, you know, or even if we have to be separated for now, but I'll at least spend this much time with you. Some couples have to start there, and that's okay. And they have, to, they have to face each other like that. Others may feel comfortable snuggling, holding hands, maybe some kissing. Maybe there's boundaries around kissing. But the critical thing is, and this is one, one thing I've seen with some of the couples that I've worked with, is that they'll say things like, what does that touch mean? What are your intentions with that touch? And I think it's a great question. And I think, I think 
people that are struggling with an addiction need to be open and accepting of the fact that not all touch is going to mean what you think it means to your partner. So you've got to talk openly about what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so over time, non-demand physical touch, non-sexual touch will ultimately rebuild um, that attunement, that connection that makes it safe to touch. And, and in our next episode, we'll talk some more about restoring intimacy long-term and so on. But for now, the key thing is, is that touch can exist when you're in recovery, and it will exist at different levels. And you really can only go as fast as the slowest person, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a form of respect. Women who, whose husbands look at pornography or partners look at pornography – they feel objectified, they feel, they feel compared, and they feel insecure about their bodies, and they feel uh, that touch can be loaded, and they, they don't really know what to make sense of it in many cases. And so you have to recognize all of this is going to mean different things now. And there's one part here that's been very difficult for me as a clinician to try to help people understand, and it's this concept. There are certain people who... They have had sexual problems their entire marriage. It's not just related with the pornography. It's that one of the partners, in particular, my experience has been with women, maybe sexual abuse as a child, where sexual intimacy and touch has been so threatening that it has really not been a part of the marriage. That's right. Right? And so they still have, quote, unquote, sex. But touch, even holding hands, cuddling, hugging is is really uncomfortable for them. If that is has been a part of your marriage, I strongly recommend that the women get help for their touch and unrelated to the pornography. Right. Because I've met many women who have been very uncomfortable with just touch even before they discovered the pornography. Right. And 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 if that's left undone, then we're asking this couple to deal with sexual intimacy when in reality it's not just about the pornography. It's about the fear of sexual intimacy and touch and closeness. Right. And restoring that sexual intimacy um, in, in most cases can take a long time. And that's okay. This Again, if you're looking at a long-term play, long-term commitment, there's time and space for this. Let me just give you a couple of quick resources because we're running out of time here. Um, I am a big fan, again, of Barry McCarthy. He wrote a great book called Rekindling Desire. And I highly recommend that. It's, it's, for, it's for couples dealing with these kinds of issues. And also, Wendy Maltz has written a fabulous book called The Sexual Healing Journey, which is really more referencing what you're talking about, Kevin, her partners, individuals that have dealt with um, sexual abuse, sexual trauma, or other kinds of sexual problems that make them very uh, you know, touch-resistant and so on. And, and she's got a very gentle guide for helping you understand that. And I think that that's a, sometimes a very important part of this entire process. A couple married create a system, and one part of this system and influences the other part of the system. And you can't ignore the functioning of both individuals and how they interplay with each other. And it's never to blame. No, I I can never cause my partner to have an affair. I don't believe I I believe my actions are my actions, and my partner can't cause me to have an affair. But I can, we can interact in a way that's unhealthy that forces or triggers me to turn to outside behaviors. Right. Creating conditions that make it hard to get close to each other. And our goal is to turn toward the relationship to create real intimacy. Right. So in review for, for this, uh, this episode five, 
of, uh, of you know, learning to build trust, we talked about transparency. We talked about the need for disclosure, how to handle relapses, how to talk about the emotions that really drive some of the reactive behaviors and being able to own some of those emotions. And then, of course, what to do about touch. And so these are some foundational um, issues that couples have to grapple with in, in recovery, both early recovery and long-term recovery. It kind of goes throughout. And to master these really helps the, st- the system stay more intact and helps to start restore some trust and closeness. And so that we will then conclude with our final part of this series, which is going to be the vision of long-term relational recovery. So couples can kind of get the feel of how to do this long-term and understand that process. This has been Dr. Kevin Skinner and Jeff Stewart. We want to thank you for joining us. Mm